0: Welcome to episode 12 of Learn Me Right. Sinead and I are very, very excited today to be speaking with Professor Keisha Ray. Keisha, are you able to just tell us a little bit about your current role and what your work is sort of looking at at the moment?
1: Sure. So I currently am a professor of bioethics and medical humanities in a medical school and University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. Um, Right now, I am also the director of our medical humanities concentration, which allows medical students to engage in the medical humanities and sort of make it like a certificate program, something to do on the side as they're also going through the rigors of medical school. And I also teach other classes in ethics and um, medical humanities to other schools in our university, like the nursing school and the dental school. And I also write,
2: research,
1: publish, give talks, interviews, all of that kind of stuff. <laughs>
2: we are so lucky to have you on the show today um it was such a, a, a an exciting moment when you emailed us back out of the blue being like yes oh come on no questions <laughs> oh out. absolutely so I appreciate so you all to have you. I have a couple of rapid fire questions for you the first is what are your pronouns my pronouns are she her perfect thank you um what is your coffee order So I actually
1: am one of the few people that does not like coffee. I (laughs) do not actually the best
2: fun on this. Okay,
1: (laughs) I'm glad because everyone looks at me weird when I say that or I say, "Hey, let's grab coffee," and then I get tea. Um, (laughs) I am a Texan, so I normally will order iced tea. Sometimes I do hot tea, but uh, yeah, I don't like coffee. Wish I did. Could use the caffeine benefits.
2: (laughs) Thank you for being honest <laughs> and authentic with us. We do appreciate yes. it. Um, what is your highlight of the year so far?
1: Highlight of the year hasn't happened yet, but it's about to. My first book will be out next month on April 25th. So You're that will be to? the highlights. Yes. And then um, I'm also expecting to get tenure this year. So those Woo-hoo! will be the two big highlights. Hopefully
2: <laughs> they both happen very soon. Um, and yeah, those are very big things for me. Congratulations. It's so, well observed. Yeah. it's so amazing. The research you put out is so necessary and so needed. So it's so amazing to see you getting rewarded for the hard work you've been putting in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate it. And It's going to be a big year.
2: <laughs> um, and then last but not least, um, what would you sing at karaoke?
1: Um, You know, the go-to is Beyonce. Uh, I think there's just, you know, I could sing any one of those songs. So I think I would not need the prompter, would not need the lyrics. I got this. So I would go with just anything Beyonce. Keep it general, but
2: specific enough. Excellent. That is impressive. Um, if we're ever in town, I would love to come. Do yes. Beyonce. I cannot say I will keep up at all.
1: But we'll do my best. Yes, absolutely. You can use the lyrics in the prompter. That's
2: okay. yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's brilliant.
0: So Keisha, are you able to tell us, first of all, about what your current research is about and what is your area of interest that you're sort of investigating your research at the moment?
1: Right. So in general, my studies are on black health. That is generally what I call just the reasons why black Americans generally have worse health than white Americans in, of course, in the U.S., and so most of my work looks at trying to dispel the myth that Black people have worse health because of something internal, whether that be um bad genetics, whether that be something that they're doing to bring about bad health, that sort of moralizing health where you must have bad health because you're doing something to bring it on, therefore you deserve it or therefore you're not entitled to social resources, or you're not entitled to empathy, right? So I'm trying to dispel those sort of self blame narratives that you hear about black people's worst health and show that it's really caused by a lack of resources, and racism within the institutions that dominate our lives, like education systems, housing systems, the legal system, but that those sort of racism in those systems create just this sort of perfect situation where Black people don't have what they need for proper health. And of course, extending beyond that well-being, right? It can't be just about health. It also has to be about joy and being well and thriving and flourishing or flourishing as uh you know philosophers. I am a philosopher at heart. So saying philosophers uh they like to use the well-being and flourishing a lot of the times. And so you want more than just good health. You also want to thrive. And so my research is looking at how you can take a historical lens to our social institutions and show how a lot of the things that were created to sort of keep black people inferior um, or below a uh, down on the hierarchy also created a lasting effect on their health. So you can trace it historically, but then also there's a contemporary lens too, because it hasn't really gone away. And then you can also take a a lens to healthcare situations, healthcare. You can also take a lens to healthcare and also see how things like provider biases, how institutional policies also make it harder for Black people to access healthcare once they are sick. So in general, it's looking at how racism outside of the clinic and how racism within the clinic create poor health outcomes for black people um, and seeing that sort of racism thread be the, the unifying factor.
0: Well, I know that you've written about that in sort of lots of different contexts, but I, I did sort of see that there was one particular article about environments and housing being close to toxins and how that impacts black people in particular and I thought that was really interesting and and as you say probably part of that historical kind of this is this is how students have developed and and that it has continuing impacts on on generations of people um so yeah very very interesting research thank you so much for that overview right
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. environmental racism is one of those institutions. Environmentalism in general is one of those institutions where we do see racism um, has been coined the term environmental racism. And it's where you see facilities that emit toxins are located in black and brown neighborhoods, mostly or in neighborhoods that have people with lower incomes. And so they disproportionately suffer the effects of it like cancer, other chronic illnesses. And environmental is environmentalism is one of those institutions that can create poor health, but it creates poor health disproportionately.
2: This is so interesting. Um, I remember I was uh, looking at a couple of papers on epigenetics and Mm -hmm. the gene environment interaction and how it's um, disproportionately uh, affects certain minority groups. So like low socioeconomic class, um, but also there were quite a few studies on black Americans And um, I, I was wondering if you could speak to that or if you had some expertise in that. Right, yeah, you know, we
1: talk a lot about epigenetics and traumas, particularly with children. Um, and we talk about it in terms of sexual trauma, too, how the effects of that can be passed down generationally. But we don't really talk about how the effects of racism, including the stress and the poor health that it can cause, can also be passed down generation- generationally. And so in that sense, racism can affect future generations, even when they haven't experienced it yet. It can affect fetuses in the womb, and they haven't even been alive yet to experience racism, Right. So racism primarily affects people in a couple of different ways. One is stress. When you experience interpersonal racism or structural racism, it increases your stress response. And when your stress response increases, it can contribute to cardiovascular disease. It can contribute to lack of sleep. And right now, we see cardiovascular disease and sleeplessness are two big issues that plague Black people disproportionately. So that's what I mean when I say I try to trace these sort of connections. Um, and then also, of course, you see racism affecting people as far as not getting access to resources, whether that be a proper education, whether that be proper housing because of historical segregation. Um, and then you also see it in environmentalism, like we talked about, and access to clean air, clean water to homes that are not polluted with carcinogens or your home gardens that are not being grown in polluted uh, dirt because of the nearby facilities that are um, making the dirt not a great thing to use for growing vegetables that you're then going to consume and put in your body. And so for me, um, racism and epigenetics are something that we have to talk about a little bit more when we're trying to dispel that Black health is caused by poor um We have to talk about epigenetics and racism a little bit more when we're trying to talk about how Black people got to have generally inferior health than other people. It can't be ignored because it has to be it has to be prominent because it's so important at how poor health can be passed on to different generations if it is not stopped um, at, at some certain point.
0: Thank you so much. I, I, Our next question is sort of about what the research is showing and why this is a, a problem, and that's sort of become really clear already throughout what mm-hmm. you said. But I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit more and, and also the fact that that this has been something that traditionally bioethicists maybe have not considered and why it's so important that this research is being done because there haven't been those voices that are really essential in order to highlight all those problems that you've mentioned.
1: Right. So there's a few ways to think about why it's important. So one is to think about it on the individual scale and the community scale. And we're talking about individual Black people who don't have what they need for proper health, to think about how that affects that person, how it affects um, their well-being, and that matters in and of itself, but then also how it affects their relationship to other people, like their family and their friends. At the self, you can't pursue hobbies, you can't spend time with pets and loved ones if you're sick, right? Um, We all have had either chronic illnesses or temporary illnesses, but either way, you know that it's not great and it's usually not something that's desirable. But you also know how it makes you not want to do those things that you find enjoyable and that make life living. And then also thinking about it in terms of family members who have to either help that person, watch that person suffer, um, feel sympathy for them. Um, So it affects entire groups and it affects individuals. And that in and of itself is why it should matter. It should not have to be in relation to anything bigger. But it is though, Right when you know you have famous words by like Martin Luther King Jr um a lot of different um activists that talk about the value of health and that if one person is experiencing poor health and is in especially if it's because of an injustice then everywhere else other people all around the world also have to be on alert because if one person is suffering if one group of people are suffering other people are suffering as well. You can't have injustice in one area and think that other groups will have justice. It just doesn't work like that. And I think a really good example of that is this COVID-19 pandemic. If you have one group around the world and they are suffering and we think that, oh, that's just them, that's them over there in that country or that city or that neighborhood, but not seeing how we're all connected and how it affects everyone else when some people are not thriving. So when we don't use our social programs, when we don't use our public health programs to take care of the people that are in need, everyone else will necessarily suffer. And so you can think about it on an individual level. A community level and a global level, but it all matters. But I also wanna make it very clear that even if other people weren't affected, Just by having this injustice affect this group of people, that would be enough for us to say we have to do something about it. Um, Black people are valuable in and of themselves without having to say, well, it also hurts other people, so please help us, right? And so I always want to make that very clear. But I think the pandemic is a really, really great example of how we are all connected and how our health is all connected, how everyone's access to resources can affect other people's access to resources when People were buying out grocery stores and buying out toilet paper and buying out medicine, right? Um, if you don't have what you need or if you have some people that have the funds to buy things and other people don't, everyone's health is affected and everyone is connected.
2: I remember um, seeing some statistics at some point at the start of COVID where they were talking about like uh, mortality rates yeah. and I remember seeing that being like, oh, you know, like it's not as you know, it's this particular rate. But then I remember seeing an article later like much down the line being like, well, no, no, this is based on white people and um, because, you know, mortality rates are also dependent on access to clinical care. So if there are more resources, mortality rates go down. And I was just realising that just, by virtue of having like racial injustices within access to care, that contributes to misinformation about like, you know, how biology works. And, you know, like it also impacts in research, in clinical trials, in making sure, you know, we can also see it in like the feminist space in women being included, but, like it is so important I remember also in Australia um how the uh some of the I think it was the COVID-19 tests or some Mm -hmm. tests didn't work on certain racial groups but the government was still like you know advising that this is the one we should be using and that would that contributes to misinformation about diagnostics and how necessary it is to get treatment in certain areas and it just at at any time you think that you know a space is not polluted by racism or one particular space is safe and trustworthy Mm -hmm. you realize it's not
1: (laughs) it absolutely is not and I think you hit on a couple of super super important things and that is the research and the numbers right and that is why you have to have accurate research and accurate numbers because so much of government funding relies on that so if you don't have Black people and their their social ills and their poor health adequately represented by research, then they don't get allocated funds from the government, they don't get uh, social health campaigns, they don't, I'm sorry, they don't, then if you don't have adequate research, and you don't have the proper numbers that reflect black people's poor health, then you don't have things that government Um, allocating proper funding for programs that can help, or allocating money for public health campaigns that can help. So that's another reason why it is so important for us to have discussions about Black health and where it stands and what its status is. Because if you don't have that knowledge and you aren't talking about it, like you said, if people don't know, then you can't start asking for the things that are needed to make it better. And so that's another thing that I'm, I'm super passionate about is I think sometimes people just don't know and there's lots of information out there. I think sometimes we get overwhelmed with the amount of information. And then also sometimes there's just bad and wrong information out there. And so I try to be a spot where here I can say, here is the research, right? Um. I will say that at some point we have enough research and I only spend so much time talking about the research because... I don't want to have to argue that racism exists and that it affects healthcare all the time. Um, For certain places and certain times, I think it's absolutely appropriate. But there are other spaces where at some point, we have to stop saying, let me prove to you that Black people have poor health because of X, Y, and Z, because of social institutions, because of structural racism, X, you know, keep going down the line. Um, and at some point, it has to be, okay, now what are we willing to do? How are we willing to talk about it differently? How does this change the way that we continue to um, try to get more funding, to get more programs, to help people on individual and community-wide level?
0: That actually leads beautifully into our next question, which is about, so what are some government solutions or or other regulatory solutions to this very clearly demonstrated problem that you've talked about? So what do we do now with this information?
1: Right. So since the problem is before clinics and after clinics, so beforehand we have to make sure that people have access to what they need. And there's going to be large scale things that, maybe some governments may not want but things like universal health care things like making sure that we're regulating housing so that it's affordable for people that we're regulating food so that way it's always affordable healthy foods are affordable um regulating transportation so that transportation remains affordable whether that be cars whether that be public transportation That also means investing in infrastructure. So that way people have the means for public transportation, bridges, streets, trains, all those things are running properly. And so it really takes money. Honestly, it takes money invested in the social systems that run our lives. That means more money for education. And in America, that may mean not tying it to property taxes. So you have some homes uh, that are worth a lot of money and then the schools in those neighborhoods get a lot of money and then homes in poor neighborhoods have schools that don't get a lot of money, so then those kids don't get access to all the things that the wealthier kids do. So it really is going to mean rethinking how we allocate money and what we allocate our money to. And then within the clinical setting, we have other issues there that can help, like having more black and brown doctors. So that also means starting early, making sure we have pipeline programs that make sure that high school students go to college and make sure they have the support that they need. And then they go to medical school and have the support that they need. And then can become interns and residents and attendings and all that kind of stuff. Um, it also means educating currently working clinicians about their role in biases and how their own biases can affect patient care and how their biases can contribute to the problem and what they can do right um so it takes a little bit of reformation before um, the clinical setting, and that means in our social institutions that run our everyday lives. But then also within the healthcare system, there has to be a small change there as well. Um, it also may mean how we we rethink uh, climate change, how we rethink our contributions to it, how we rethink humans' contribution to carcinogens in the air and pollutants. Um, so it really will take a sort of radical changing of our values and then changing our actions. But that doesn't mean there aren't small scale things. Individual physicians, individual nurses, individual therapists can make changes. Individual community organizations can make changes. Researchers can keep putting out the information. They can make sure that people are educated. They can also make sure that communities, Black communities stay involved in the research. They can make sure that they're adequately represented in clinical trials and clinical studies. Um, So there's lots of big scale things and then there's small scale things that you can do. And then honestly, even individuals, if you have a friend and they are a person of color, let's say they are a black woman who is pregnant. We know that in America, there's a huge um, black maternal mortality um, issue going on here. And if you're not Black and if you're white and your Black friend says, hey, I'm going to the doctor, go with them, right? Sometimes just being in the room as another set of ears, but then also, unfortunately, sometimes it leans some... some legitimacy to their problems in that thing. Again, it's not ideal, and it shouldn't be that way. But on a very practical level, that can be one thing that you do is go with your friend, right? And that's something that you as an individual can do and change something for an individual person. So it doesn't always have to be large scale. Obviously, that's ideally what I would like. But there are individual things that you can do um, for your family, for your friends, um, and for anyone else who needs it.
2: That's so perfect of you to just naturally discuss the individual things um, because that's what this podcast is all about. Like we we know that the average person can't, can't make systemic change you know that's what advocacy groups are to lobby the government to make those systemic changes that we so desperately need but this podcast is all about how can the individual help in that situation to start to improve it because I'm a firm believer that just because someone else or just because you know you're just one drop in the ocean doesn't mean that you shouldn't do the right thing Um, So it's really interesting that you just naturally led towards what the individual can do. And I really like that example um, of, you know, especially for Ruthie and myself, we have that white privilege and, you know, just to pretend like it's not there and to just be like, you know, oh, you know, we'll just ignore this and we'll just pretend like we don't see race Um, because in theory that would be, you know, you know mm-hmm. an ideal world where we <laughs> didn't see these racial differences as um, like you know normative problems um but y- using that white privilege for us to provide legitimacy in that space could do so much um but i was also reading a really excellent book called hood feminism and i cannot mm-hmm. believe the author's name escapes me so um mm-hmm. Um, do you remember yes. the author? Yes, I don't remember the author, but it's a very good book. Yes, it's an amazing book. Um, and she talks about um how uh, for a really long time feminism has been all about white cis um able-bodied rich women, mm-hmm. and um how that is entirely problematic, and how uh you know white women have been stepping on the shoes of others um of uh, black women of disabled women in order to gain any power they can in the patriarchy. And it's so interesting that she says that you know sometimes though we turn around and we realize what we've done and we want to make a difference, but the best thing we can do is step out of that space so that those with lived experience can step into it and have a platform without other voices crowding them out. And I found that really, really just you know like a I've been wanting to advocate and I and I want to say stuff, but then I realize that actually it's not it's not my place, and the best thing I can do sometimes is step out of that space so that others can, you know, rightfully be angry and, and, you know, speak there. Um, So thank you so much for just automatically going into that individual advice. I was wondering if you had like any more amazing tips like that, because those are the things that, you know, I, I need to hear and that I would love to learn.
1: Right, you know, there are a lot of websites that show you local organizations that are doing the things that you can do to help. Um, I'm sorry, there are a lot of websites that have local organizations that list all the people that are already doing the work. And sometimes they even list their needs. So like, for instance, you can support Black Mamas Matters Alliance, right? They are a group of Black women-led organizers who work on Black birthing mortality, And sometimes you can lend your money, you can lend your time, your effort to make people know about where they are. Um, They have conferences, they're doing advocacy work, um, if you have any expertise, right? So there's different organizations like that. There's Root, R-O-T. They also work in Black birthing mortality as well. And so lending your time, your money, your expertise, but then also making people aware of them there are some people who may not even know that these organizations exist. And so podcasts like this, I think are really cool because you are using your time and using your effort and you're using um, your position to say, Hey, here's a platform. Let's talk about these issues. Someone listens to it. Maybe they go find the website. Maybe they figure out how they can contribute. And so I think you're doing really great things because I think awareness is super, super important. And I think sometimes as academics, we take for granted that people have access to the same things that we do to get knowledge. And sometimes we take for granted that, oh, people already know this very basic thing. And I think we underestimate how many people don't know the basics. And so sometimes talking about it, giving platforms to people, I think is a really, really good, Matt, uh, a really good type of allyship. And so I think Creating spaces like this, I think, is 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 super super awesome, and happy to do it. Happy that you all are still doing it. I uh, will tell all my friends about it. Get on here with them, Sinead and Ruthie. You need to get on here. Um, and so I think you know, there's lots of individual things to do, and I think um making space for other people to share their stories and to share the work that they're already doing is is a really really good way to help.
0: And and sorry, I just have a, a one sort of little comment to add as well. I think. Um, one thing I have learnt over the last few years, in particular, is that it's also I think about people making an effort rather than just waiting for somebody who does have that lived experience to tell them where to look or where to go. It's also up to us to say, okay, I'm this. I know this is a problem. I'm going to make the effort to find out the information. I'm going to take the steps that I can to to try and inform myself of this. So. Um, Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a fascinating podcast. Really, really appreciated speaking with you. Sinead, did you have anything to add?
2: (laughs) No, just thank you so much for how generous you have been with us and how much trust and faith you put in our podcast after we reached out to you over Twitter. you <laughs> are It's just Absolutely. amazing. We are two measly PhD students in the <laughs> tiny city of Brisbane. <laughs> and- no,
1: no, you all are doing great work. So I'm always happy to help out students who, who are doing uh, something great for the cause. So happy, happy to you. And thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it.
2: Um and also thank you for managing us with the time difference um i've become quite aware that one of my biggest weaknesses is estimating times in different time zones um, it just same i just completely <laughs> i just i don't know i calculate the hours back and i'm about 6 hours off most times so <laughs> i did i said yes to uh,
1: a a talk a conference talk and then i started calculating i said wait that's 4am i'm sorry i can't do that <laughs> i have to back it up (laughs) good for you good for
2: you setting boundaries
1: (laughs) yeah i didn't realize it and i started adding on my fingers like wait a minute that no no that's way too early
2: (laughs) i have to go onto one of those websites that just tells me the difference like what i I use use google or siri say hey siri what time is it in brisbane and it
1: works that. it works every time okay.
2: I will start using um my my google for this yes absolutely <laughs> okay um thank you so much again we are so grateful and if uh when you publish something next we would love to have you on the show again this is not a you know a once only opportunity <laughs> love absolutely to see you I um, appreciate this <laughs> our absolute pleasure um all then thank see you, thank you. So much
0: see you later all right.